This is Examine Sport, a podcast of the sports ethicist. I am your host, Sean Klein. Each episode of Examine Sport focuses on a paper in the philosophy of sport literature. We look at classic discipline-defining articles, exciting newly published works, and dig deep for important but not as well-known papers. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. In this episode of Examine Sport, I look at Nicholas Dixon's article, on winning and athletic superiority. Published in the Journal of Philosophy of Sport in 1999, this article examines the relationship between winning and athletic superiority. In so doing, Dixon brings our attention to important concepts in the philosophy of sport. First, what is the central competitive purpose of sport? Second, how should we deal with cases that seem not to meet this purpose? what Dixon calls undeserved victories or failed athletic contests. What do these tell us about the purpose of competitive sport and what athletic superiority means? Lastly, Dixon is one of the first philosophers to examine whether playoffs are an effective way to determine superiority, to decide which team or player is best. Now, Dixon starts with what seems like a rather simple question. Who is the better team? Well, the obvious answer, says Dixon, is the team that wins. If you win, you are better. You are the superior team in virtue of the fact that you won. We can see this in the familiar chant by fans at the opposing side, scoreboard, scoreboard, to which the losing fans have no response. The scoreboard tells us who is superior. Now, one of the main purposes of competitive sport is to to determine which side is better. The structure of the game is meant to provide the comparison of athletic superiority, and so the winner is superior. But Dixon points out that there are many cases of what seem to be undeserved victories, victories that don't seem to meet this competitive purpose. These are, quote, contests in which the player or team that wins is not, according to both our intuitions and plausible accounts of the goal of competitive sport from the philosophy of sport literature, better than the losing player or team, end quote. For example, a referee makes a terrible error, say, calling off a late winning goal for offsides when the player is clearly onsides. The better team fails to win, not because the opposing side was better, but because of a refereeing mistake. There are other examples, and Dixon explores these in his paper. Now, Dixon sets out to explore these failed athletic contests, and through them, to find the answers to three main questions. First, how well do athletic contests fulfill their competitive purpose of determining athletic superiority? Given that there are these examples of undeserved victories and failed athletic contests, what does this tell us about the relationship between winning and superiority? A better understanding, suggests Dixon, of this relationship can show us that winning is not the same as athletic superiority, and this realization could reduce the desire for that win-at-any-cost attitude. Second, what determines athletic superiority? What can an examination of these failed athletic contests tell us about the elements of athletic superiority? And how much weight or priority should we give to the various elements that make up athletic superiority? 
Dixon's particular focus is on the role of psychological traits, such as poise under pressure, and how much impact such traits should have. Lastly, Dixon asks whether playoffs are an effective way of determining the best team. Spoiler alert, Dixon argues they are not. He thinks they privilege the ability to perform under pressure too much, and so don't properly capture athletic superiority fully. Now, Dixon looks at four main ways that athletic contests can fail. That is, cases where the winning team is not the better or athletically superior team. We have what I've already mentioned before, refereeing errors, cheating, gamemanship, and bad luck. Now, I early gave an example of a refereeing error, a mistaken offsides call, that could lead to the superior team failing to win. They would have won based on their performance and skills, but because of refereeing errors, they do not. Now, Dixon considers a few objections to this idea, but the main objection is that, quote, a great team should be able to overcome bad calls, end quote. Now, Dixon acknowledges this. A great team is one that is able to overcome an incompetent or corrupt referee, but this is not true of just a good team. One that in any given match is better, better in terms of having demonstrated its skill and excellence in play, but is not great and not able to overcome such refereeing errors. Such cases, says Dixon, provide ample evidence of an undeserved victory and thus a failed contest. Now, it will strike most as quite obvious that, as Dixon writes, quote, a victory that depends in large part on cheating seems neither deserved nor a sign of athletic superiority, end quote. Cheating fails to demonstrate athletic superiority because athletic superiority is in part defined by playing better within the rules. But what if cheating could be seen as an extension of the tactics and strategies that one might employ in a match? Now, Dixon considers the argument that Oliver Lehman presented, that there could be aspects to cheating that fit within the game and could be seen to add to our understanding of athletic superiority. While Dixon seems to, doesn't seem to accept Lehman's conclusions, he does acknowledge that the argument shows that athletic superiority is more than mere physical prowess. Quote, an excellent athlete must not only have superior physical skills, but also the acumen to use them wisely, employing shrewd tactics and strategies that are designed to maximize the benefits of his or her skills while simultaneously neutralizing those of the opponents, end quote. Nevertheless, these tactics and strategies are only good insofar as they are within the scope of the rules. If such tactics and strategies fall outside of what is permitted in the game, they cannot demonstrate superiority in that game. Now, another way in which a team might get an undeserved victory is through the use of gamemanship. Now, Dixon points out two main kinds of gamemanship. First, the use of psychological tactics, such as trash-talking or time-wasting, that are used to employ to, or that, that are employed to unsettle or disrupt the opponent in some way, to get in their head. Second, there is the use of strategic fouls or professional fouls, the intentional and strategic use of fouling the opponent to gain an advantage in a match. Now, gamemanship is different from cheating. Gamemanship is not really a violation of the rules. Even in the case of a strategic foul, the expectation is that the rules are applied. Indeed, the advantage of committing the foul comes from, at least in part, the rules being applied and the foul called. 
So these kinds of gamemanship are not really forms of cheating. They are legal acts within the game, even if their moral status might be questionable. Now, in that sense, Dixon suggests that gamemanship is an apparent violation of the spirit of the game. You are ab abiding by the rules in, such, in, in a technical sense, but not really in the sense intended by the game. And so it's in this way that a victory achieved through gamemanship seems undeserved. It's not a victory that rests on the demonstration of superior athletic skill, but instead rests on tripping up, in some cases of fouls, quite literally tripping up, the opponent. Now, another set of failed athletic contests arises, quote, in games in which one team dominates the other, but still manages to lose the game because of a succession of strokes of bad luck. Now, these sorts of cases seem to be more of an issue in lower scoring sports, such as soccer or hockey, where a few instances of bad luck can have a far-reaching effect on the game. While luck tends to balance out in the long run, in games where only a few goals are scored, the luck can swing against you in a match. And as any fan of these sports will tell you, there are many cases of a dominating team that fails to win because of the inopportune slip on the grass or the inadvertent, unfortunate deflection of a defender. In such cases, it seems like the superior team deserves to win, but doesn't. One objection to this, similar to the discussion in refereeing errors, is the idea that a great team should be able to overcome bad luck. And Dixon acknowledges that, but still maintains that the merely good team, the team that in this particular match demonstrates its superior skill and ability in the field of play, still not be good, might not be good enough to overcome bad luck. And so the loss still seems undeserved. Now, everyone agrees that even the best of us can have bad days. Superior athletes, superior teams can have off days as well. In such cases, an inferior team or player can win and deserve, in virtue of their play, to win. Nevertheless, the losing side is still regarded as superior in virtue of their track record of excellence. Any one given game is not sufficient for the measurement of athletic superiority. And Dixon uses this idea as the basis for his criticism of the playoff system. Such systems must, Dixon claims, quote, presuppose that victory in the biggest games is the best measure of athletic superiority, end quote. And from this, it follows that, quote, the ability to perform well under pressure when the stakes are highest, end quote, is on the playoff view, a better measure of athletic superiority than, quote, the ability to perform well over the course of a season, end quote. Now, a large part of this view is that the ability to perform under pressure is an aspect of psychological toughness, and such toughness is a key aspect of athletic excellence. And Dixon's primary concern here is just how much weight to give the role of psychological toughness. He recognizes that it is essential and that the lack of psychological toughness would disqualify one from being considered the best. However, he argues we can't give it so much weight that the only victory in the highest stakes game qualifies for one being the best. Quote, we should leave conceptual space for regarding the team that has shown superior skill, strategy, and psychological toughness throughout the entire regular season and playoffs before losing the final game in the playoffs in a subpar performance as nonetheless the best team, end quote. That is, if the goal is to determine which team or player is truly the best one, the one with the superior skills and strategies, as well as the mental focus and discipline to execute consistently at the highest levels of the game, then we should be wary of resting the determination of the best team or player on one given game. 
We should focus on the full season, the full body of the work by the team or player, not just a single game. Now, one main conclusion of Dixon's paper is that a just or deserved result, one that is based on the play of the team players uh, in that given match, is not necessarily an accurate indicator of relative athletic excellence of the teams or players. Good teams can lose, inferior teams can win, any given Sunday, as the saying goes. We also get a fuller picture of what athletic superiority includes. It's not just physical prowess, but also includes the ability to strategize, to have poise, and mental toughness. But while toughness is an important component of excellence, playoffs overemphasize it by putting so much on a single high-stakes game. This is detriment to the other components of athletic superiority and the accurate measure of athletic excellence. Now, Dixon then concludes on a hopeful note that this analysis can put winning into a saner perspective, that we can see that while winning and the pursuit of winning is an important part of competitive sport, it's not the end-all be-all of athletic excellence. This, he hopes, can reduce the motivation to engage in bad behavior to achieve victory, while also fostering healthier, more cooperative competitions. Thank you for listening to Examine Sport. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. Please also consider rating the show at Apple Podcasts, liking it on YouTube, and sharing on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. You can email the show, sportsethicist at gmail.com.